invite you to turn to your in your Bibles to Jude, the Epistle of Jude, back of your New Testament, of course, right before Revelation. Small epistle, twenty-five verses. Twenty-five verses who compel us, who drive us to respond to his admonition. Let's read the first four verses again this morning, and in reading it, not just reading it in a, in, a, in a passive way, but reading it in a way we, we observe what Jude is not just saying, but the way he's saying it. We can sense his sense of, of passion, of urgency that drives him to write, to write this epistle. Going into this, to this text, I, I realize there's 25 verses, and someone asked me earlier before the first service, are you going to cover the entire epistle? Well, the, the problem is when you have one opportunity to speak, and you take a small epistle, it's hard to extrapolate a few verses and make it fit with properly in the context. So we are going to, to see his admonition in the first four verses, and then we're going to see his, his closing application and how you, make, how you walk, actually, with God in the age of apostasy. We're going to skim through, if you will, in the middle part where he describes the apostates, but we're going to walk through some of that as well. So we've got some ground to cover this morning. First four verses, he says, Jude, a servant or a slave or a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, to those who are beloved in God the Father, to those who are kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This is probably the verse that we're most familiar with. Verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray and commit this word to the Lord. Father, we come to you. Lord, you... James warns us, Lord, that few become teachers because of the weight of responsibility that comes with speaking. Lord, may I only be true to your word. May your word be the only thing that remains. And if an impact is to be made, may it be the spirit of the word and the word of God might speak truth into our hearts this morning. So we commit this time to you, Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. You can't, you can't read these, this passage and even begin in here in his introduction without feeling this, this sense of urgency that Jude presents here. He's compelling them. Just in, even in using that term, he's, he's compelling. We sense this urgency. We sense this necessity. We sense a matter of great importance. Now, some would say that what drives him to be so so urgently compelling the believers is, of course, the message itself, one where he's warning them about the apostates and the danger they present to the church, but also because he's probably at a point in life right now in the history of the church where he's seen most of the apostles martyred and put to death. We estimate that Jude was written probably in around 68 A.D., as you know, that when Nero put Rome to burnt Rome down, following, following that in 64, there was this brutal persecution of the church, brutal persecution of believers. And following that, Apostle Paul was martyred, Peter was martyred. 
And so he's, he's at a stage in his life where there might be only the Apostle John. Now, Jesus is not an apostle, but the Apostle John left, and he's going to write, of course, a book of Revelation from the island of Patmos in Asia Minor. So he, he's looking back, and he's seeing this vicious, this brutal persecution. And what's left, that's why in verse 17 he says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he's, he's saying, hey, remember what they said. They're no longer on the scene, but let me remind you, of what they told us would happen because it's here. So there's, there's this sense of, of weight of responsibility, perhaps because of what he's already witnessed and him being one of the last church fathers even on the scene here as he writes this. There are many similarities to Second Peter. I think that most commentators would say that Jude follows Second Peter. As a matter of fact, if you go to most commentaries, if you pick up a commentary on Jude, it's going to be Second Peter, Jude. They're going to be combined because of the, how they mirror each other. But Second Peter primarily focuses on warning the church of the apostates to come. Jude is warning the church on the apostates present. So with that understanding, he probably followed in, in those footsteps. Jude is what we call a, a general epistle. There's no, it's not designated, though it's obviously written to a specific church because he talks about the, the dangers and he's talking about people have crept in unnoticed. So he's obviously speaking to a specific body of believers, but they're not spoken in name. He doesn't have names of people. Even the apostates are not named because the message is not limited to that generation, but it's a message that's given to all generations, not just to all believers. I would say specifically this message is given to all churches. The danger is, is, is not just the falling away of believers, the danger that he presents, that he's concerned about, is the falling away of churches and, Lytton, and churches allowing perverted truth, the perversion of truth, enter the body of Christ. So I would say, in a, as a general epistle, the warning is for all churches. So what he's going to do, what Jude is going to do, is going to be, he's going to begin in verse 1 and then verse 2 by reminding them of who they are. Now, I want to say this about Jude. Jude is a, is a kind and, and, and passionate and loving shepherd. He's not here, you know, mad at the church, reading, you know, he, he's rebuking them. I can't believe you let this happen. No, he's coming with a, a three times in verse, uh, verse 7, I think 7 or 3, then verse 17, and then later on in verse 20, he calls them my beloved, my loved ones, I love you. But he, he out of concern, out of love for them, he he invokes on them. He compels them. He, first of all, he does that by reminding them of who they are. Who you are is at the heart of what you're called to do. Who you are is at the heart of what you're called to do. And he's going to unpack that. Then he's going to remind them of what they're called to do. In verse 3, he's going to remind them of what they're called to do. You're called to, I'm calling you to defend, contend for the faith. In the middle of this book, of this letter rather, he's, he'll remind them of who they are, who the apostates are. And we're going to walk through that, but we're not going to unpack every example he gives here. Jude is a fantastic letter, and it, it gives a lot of difficult text. Some have discredited Jude because he quotes from the book of Enoch, which is not uh, a book of the canon. So some have said, well, it's not legitimately present here. So there are very controversial verses here, debated verses, I should, see, I should say, rather. But the, the heart of it, he's going to describe what the apostates looked like. We're, not, we're going to walk through that briefly but not have time to really unpack all of that. But then we'll walk at the end. We'll remember, he'll remind them rather. He'll say how to remember how to walk with God in an age of apostasy. But the first thing he begins with is reminding them of 
who you are. Remember who you are, verse 1 and 2. As I mentioned, who you are is at the heart of what you're called to do. When you understand your responsibility, usually you, when you go through, through marital counseling, one of the first things you do is well, identify what the responsibility of the husband is, what the husband, responsibility of the wife is, because if you don't know who you are, you don't know what your responsibilities are. So he starts out by saying, "Here's remember who you are, and he gives them a few descriptives here. Now he begins by introducing himself as a servant or a slave of Jesus Christ. The name Jude is really the name Judas. The translators early on didn't want to put Judas. They felt like it would be a little confusing to put the book of Judas, considering Judas is our greatest apostate there is. And so they used the word Jude. But if you go to uh, in Matthew 13, when it gives a description of the brothers of Christ, you're going to have James, you're going to have Simon, you're going to have Joseph, you're going to have Judas. This is the Judas as the half-brother of, of Christ. Now, of course, most people find the irony, you know, if I were to introduce myself, I'd probably start with, hey, by the way, I'm the half-brother of Christ. That might give me a little more leverage, but he doesn't say that. He identifies himself as a slave of Christ, as James did as well. He's humble. He's, he's kind. He's gracious. He's the brother of James, which is the, the lead pastor of Jerusalem. I, I believe at this point James has probably already passed. He probably passed about four or five years prior so he's, he's really facing a time where he's, he, he's seen the persecution. He's seen this here, and he's given this word of, of admonition out of love as a loving shepherd. And I want us to, to understand that, that tone as he describes this in, in this letter. But he first reminds them of who they are, their identity in Christ. This, this, this foundation provides the legitimacy of the expectation that's going to be given to them. You can't contend for the faith unless you can identify as one who's been called, kept, and loved. And that's what he describes here in this first verse. So the first thing he says is, the first expression he gives here in verse 1, he says, to those who are called. He says, you are the called of God, called out of darkness into light. He'll contrast that in verse 4 with describing those of the ungodly. What does he say about the ungodly? He says, the ungodly, in verse 4, he says, they were long ago designated for this condemnation. So the ungodly are designated for condemnation, but you're, you've been called. And, of course, he's laying the foundation for saying, you know, if he's, if he's going to ask them to contend for the faith, to, to fight for the faith, to stand up for the faith, to defend the faith, it's because you're of the called ones. That's what you're called to do. God's plan from eternity past to eternity future is to gather people for his name from every tribe and every nation called out to glorify him. And we're, we're part of that. We're part of the called out. They need to know that because there's, there's, no, there's no grounds for them to stand on unless they're the called out. Then he says they're, they're loved in verse 1. You're the called, you're, you're loved of God, you're the beloved in God the Father, loved with this unwavering, unchanging, everlasting love. Love not because he saw in us something worthy to love, love because he chose us, because he called us. Love because we're chosen for his glory and for his purposes. We're called, we're, we're beloved in God the Father. And he says what? We're, we're kept for Jesus Christ. He says you're, you've been kept for Christ. I mean, you're not, 
You're not called and loved for yourself. You are called and loved for him, for his purposes, for Christ. We've been kept by Jesus, in Jesus, and for Jesus. And yes, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Kept in him, kept in perfect peace. Is there anything more encouraging? Because he is about ready to describe what these apostates look like. And of course, he's going to remind them, but they're in your midst of the society that you're living in, and in the midst of the church, and in the midst of this, he wants to say, remember, you're, you're called out. You've been chosen. You've been loved. What a contrast with those that will have condemnation on them. What a contrast with those who will give an example of in just a few minutes, and they'll walk through those who've been turned away because they've walked, they've seen the light, but they've walked away from the light, and God will condemn them, remove them. He's contrasting that with those that will be removed later because they're apostates. You've not been removed. You've been embraced. What a beautiful picture. And then because of that, verse 2, you're blessed. As the called, as the kept in Christ, you are the recipients of God's mercy. You're the recipients of God's peace. You're the recipients of God's love. And I like what he says here, what? Not just once given, but multiplied. That's what he means by that. It's not, not just once given to you, but multiplied. Jeremiah describes it this way in Lamentations. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Lamentations 3. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He's describing who they are in Christ. He's describing the foundation they're building on. He's describing that how they're the recipients of God's continued blessing. And with that is the ground on which they stand. We don't stand because we have our own merit, because we're smarter, because we're better, because we're stronger, because we, we're more discerning. We stand on Christ and Christ alone. And he reminds them of that because now he's asking them, he's telling them that you need to contend for the faith. He's going to remind them now of what they're called to do. Remember what you are called to do. In verse 3 is the pivotal message here. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So much is, is packed into this one verse here. I want to make sure that we, we grasp this. First, we sense this, there's a sense of urging. He appeals to them. It's not like, hey, it's not like, it's kind of like Matt St. Clair when he appeals to you for children's workers, something like that. A sense of, of great need and desperation that we need helpers. This is not a, a passive statement. He's appealing to them saying, I, I need you to come alongside, come by my side and join me in this is what he's saying. He summons God's people. He compels them. He appeals to them. And he appeals them in such a way that it requires a response. You know, sometimes you hear these questions and they're rhetorical questions that don't really require a response. Or there's a question, but you really know it doesn't really apply to me. No, th th this is stated and phrased in such a way, one, that it, it creates a sense of urging. Two, it creates a sense of a necessity to respond to this. You can't walk away from this indifferent. You can't listen to Jude and read this and walk away thinking, well, he's talking about somebody else. No, he's talking about me is the way you read this. So there's a great sense of appeal, of urgency, and then there's a, a sense of necessity. 
He says, why? He says, you need to, I'm asking you, I'm appealing to you, would you contend for the faith? He uses a word here that's a, a call to struggle, to embrace the struggle. A lot of times when you see this topic being taught, you see the illustration is a, is a set of boxing gloves. Why? Because the, the, the picture desired is this confrontation. There's an adversary. You don't just stand up for truth. The implication is that there's an adversary in this. The implication here is that it's difficult and that there's opposition in this. So when he says that you need to contend for something, there's a struggle he's asking them to embrace. It's a passionate word, fighting for something, embracing the struggle. Do this on the basis of what? Because you're, you're the called and you're the kept in Christ. You're the loved ones. This is what you're, you're called to do, to embrace this and contend for the faith. There's something that is significant for this church at that point in time, but this message is for all churches in all seasons of life, in all generations. You know, each, each generation inherits from its previous generation. I, had a, I inherited a lot of wonderful things from my parents. My father was dedicated to ministry. He was committed. They were unwavering. They were, they were so loving, and they, he set forth such a, I inherited such a Beautiful example of what it means to serve the Lord faithfully for all these years. But there's one thing that we know as parents, that there are things we cannot pass on to the next generation. Yes, maybe the previous generation passed on wonderful commentaries for us. Maybe they passed on churches that were planted. Maybe they passed on seminaries that were, that were started. But this generation cannot fight for the next generation. Each generation must contend for the faith for its own generation. There are many things that can preoccupy us. There are many things that we can, uh, as a young generation, can benefit from. But you know, as, as, a, as a parent, when you raise your children, you can, you can cuddle your children. You can care for your children. You can make sure when your son walks out the door that he carries that warm jacket because there's a breeze, you're going to get sick. But we also know there comes a day where he's going to walk out on his own. He's going to have to stand on his own two feet. He's going to have to fight his own battles. Jude knows that every generation is going to have to contend for the faith for that generation. And so regardless of what had happened yesterday, we today as a church need to know what it means to stand up for the faith and defend the faith and contend for the faith. There's a great sense of responsibility as well in these words. Contend for the faith that was what? That was once for all delivered to the saints or entrusted. Some of your translators have the word entrusted it's been delivered to them. So the, the, the picture given here is not just something that's been dropped in our lap. It's been something that's been entrusted to us. I think we understand right away the implications of that, what that means. If I were to give something to somebody and there's no responsibility behind it, I'd say, hey, here's a love offering. On that. You know, that's, take it and do whatever you want with it. That's one thing. But if I give somebody resources, hey, I'm going to come back in a month and see what you did with them. Well, now there's, there's a different responsibility. You've been entrusted with something. This truth that we're to contend for has been delivered, has been entrusted, has been given, has been handed down to God's people, has been given to you and I to handle and to handle well. The people of God and the church of God, as it is gathered, has been given the unique task of preserving, of protecting, and of proclaiming God's word. Too often I fear that the church has concerned itself with 
passing on traditions to the next generation and not truth. I'm not saying we're not concerned with truth. What I'm saying is that we need to be very diligent and very careful with what is asked of us here. He is asking us to make sure that we pass on truth to the next generation without adding or taking away from it, without adding my, my preferences, without adding my particular clarifications, without adding my personal convictions, without adding my what feels right Christianity to it and put whatever label you want on that, we are to pass on the unadulterated truth of God's word, untainted by what we would like to add to it. That might not be as easy as what it seems because each generation wants to pass on just a little more. And even as I raise my children, we're, we're aware of truth being passed on, but and we, we give our convictions, we give our truth, we give things that we're passionate about, but boy, we better make a clear distinction between what's God's truth and what's my preferences in the matter because the weight of our responsibility is to make sure, not that so we pass on truth, but that make sure we don't mess with that truth and that we pass it on without having perverted it or added to it. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says, I delivered to you as, I, as a matter of first importance what I received. He's saying, you know, what I'm giving to you is what I've received. Hey, I'm not giving to you my own personal things here. This is, not, this is not Paul speaking. This is what I've received, and I've been told to pass it on to you. He said that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scripture. There is a, a great sense of responsibility described here, and there's a great sense of danger presented here as well. He says, ungodly people have crept in. The creeps, like a better word, there's creeps amongst you, is what he's saying. They've, they've crept in unnoticed to you. He's, he's, and these are ungodly people, and they're, they're perverting the grace of God. Don't you find it? I mean, I found it, in a way. I find, I should say, amazing, or interesting, at least, that in all the things that Jude had already witnessed, apostles being martyred, He's, he's watching the, the intense persecution from outside. He's watching the intense persecution from the world. And what is his greatest concern, his greatest threat, is what happens within the church. I think far too often our concern is what's going on out there. We should be a lot more preoccupied with what's going on in here. His fear is not from without. His fear of what happens from within. Why? Because of, because of his passion for preserving truth and the church's responsibility to guard it. Apostasy... Is, is not a, a generic name for evil. There's all forms of wickedness and all forms of sin, but apostasy is, is, is specifically not just devious, but discern, hard to discern and hard to see and, and very, very dangerous. It, it represents abandoning the truth. I think MacArthur says it well when he says, an apostate is someone who has received light, but not life. There are many people who have embraced light or have seen light, but they have not embraced the life of Christ. Apostasy is a deliberate rejection of the truth once presented or known. Apostates are not content keeping to themselves. Now, it would be easy if, if a sinner walked through the door 
and they were an adulterous person, and they were a proclaimed sinful person or an atheist, and they made that known, it'd be easier to say, well, listen, here's what we're about, and we're, we're not of the same essence here. It's different to take someone who has embraced truth to a certain extent and has reflected truth to a certain extent, but they don't, they don't belong, and they're actually perverted, and they're ungodly because we tend to embrace them, obviously, with open arms because we were not always as discerning as what Jude would want us to be. Apostates are not content with, with keeping their perversion to themselves. They infiltrate seminaries, infiltrate book publishers, they infiltrate Christian movies and Christian music, and they infiltrate everything they can and take truth and, and twist it enough to an undiscerning person doesn't see the nuance with what was changed and the significance of it. I think America, by many indicators, is rightfully called an apostate nation. No other country in the history of mankind has benefited from the light to the extent this country has. I mean, we have a country that's been, that's been flooded with light and flooded with truth. And yet a larger and larger segment of society is rejecting the light. Not satisfied with rejecting truth, they infiltrate the truth. They infiltrate, rather, the church and seek to undermine the very foundations the church was built on. To the point where you can arrive one and two and three generations later and a church can actually fly a rainbow flag. Well, at at one point in time, there was this apostate infiltrating it and and denying the very truth thereof that they were founded on. It's hard, perhaps, to qualify or to quantify, I should say, how exposed to the gospel this country has been. But a few numbers brought, caught my attention. There are 20 million Bibles sold in this country every year. 85% of households in America own a Bible. We have the highest Bible per person with around four per person in this country. Ironically enough, I read one stat that said that it's also the most shoplifted book. So I don't know what that means. I'm assuming when they're done reading it, they'll go back and reimburse and pay back, pay for it, hopefully. Millions are spent on gospel billboards that you've seen, many of them across the byways and the highways. $20 million was spent on Jesus Gets You Super Bowl ad in hopes that hundreds of millions would see it. And yet with all of this, with all of this, I throw these numbers simply to say this. This country has received more light than, in, than most, and yet it is growing more and more and more and more intolerant of that Christianity. A nation where a fifth of pregnancies in an abortion. A nation where a quarter, one-fourth of all pornography flows from this country. You think of the warnings given in Scripture to what a church like this we have unique challenges in this country, and having lived in other places, having traveled in other places, there are unique challenges in this country, and part of the unique challenges come from the fact that we live in such a strong apostate nation, and we're a church in the middle of that apostate nation, and truth can be easily perverted, and it's easier to be deceived by it, because it's blended with so many of other cultural aspects. Hebrews ten twenty nine says, how much... Worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled under the foot, underfoot the Son of God, and has profaned the blood of the covenant 
by which he was sanctified. And it has outraged the spirit of grace. Second Peter, which I believe precedes Jude, and Jude feeds off of this, but Second Peter says, For if, after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if again they, they, again, they again are entangled in it and overcome by it, the last state has become worse than the first. Verse 21, it says, It would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it. Turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Wow. The better for them never to be exposed to light than, than be blinded by the light and walk away from it and not embrace it. So it's a double-edged sword. Our country has so much Christianity, but the double-edged sword is that it creates a nation of apostates who reject it. What a, what a dangerous place to be. William Booth, as he looked at the greatest threat as he perceived, and William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, the greatest threat to the 20th century, according to him, is religion without the Holy Ghost. Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration. He said, our greatest threat is not from without, it is from within. Spurgeon said that an atheist, said atheists are not nearly as dangerous as a preacher unfaithful to the word. Atheists are not nearly as dangerous as a preacher unfaithful to the word, a preacher who uses the pulpit for his own liking, his own agenda, and his own purposes. Some of those that represent the greatest threat are those who every Sunday are behind the pulpit and preach and teach. There is a sense of rebuke given to them. The sense of rebuke in verse 5. Two things that he points out to them that is that... He, he does so again, he, he, he does so in the loving, shepherding way, but he says two things. One, they've crept in unnoticed. You've been, you've been neglectful. The reason why he uses the word unnoticed obviously implies you should have noticed. We're going to see a little bit afterwards, you know, how do you walk, in, well, how do you walk with God in an apostate state? Well, part of it is knowing truth, being grounded in truth, that you should have known you, they, by unnoticed. You should have noticed it. Second thing he tells him, he says, you've been forgetful. You've forgotten. Jude must remind him. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew this. I mean, this is something you knew, but clearly you have forgotten. Does it mean it's out of their mind in that sense? No, it's probably forgotten in the sense that they've been preoccupied with other things and not paying attention. And they were not remembering that which they should have remembered. So he, he, he does from here in the verses that follow... He, he'll give a description of what the apostates look like. Now, obviously, for the sake of time, you're thinking, well, we're going to walk through this. We don't really have time to walk through this. But I, I want to bridge that gap between his exhortation in the first four verses and take it to his last admonition and how to walk in, the, in godliness in the midst of an apostate state. So I want to walk through that. But let's bridge the gap with what it means to be an apostate because he, he develops that picture completely here. And it's, a, it's an interesting read and certainly a lot of difficult, if you want to call that, difficult passages here. But let me walk through just a few examples that he gives, and I give it here. So let's, I'm going to keep your focus on the text here for the next five minutes. So just look down at the verses with me, and look at what he first does. First, he gives three examples, three examples in verses 5 through 7, three examples that serve as reminders that God will judge the fallen away. 
first example that he gives is the people of Israel, as the spies came to the promised land, they walked into the land, they saw the land, they walked out and says, no, 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 God, I don't, we can't trust God for this. This is beyond God's reach. God says he sent them back in the desert, the desert for destruction. Verse 6, he speaks to the angels who did not stay in their place. We're assuming he's speaking to, the, he's referencing Genesis chapter 6, where the, it says in Genesis 6 that the, the angels left their domain, and the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them for wives. So when he's referring to, to this rebellion in verse 6, the condemnation on them is the, these angels who left their domain and came and had relationships with the women of the earth, and God condemned them and judged them and removed them for it. The third example is that of immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. So the, these three examples are going to serve as reminders that God will judge the fallen away. He will remove them. In Sodom and Gomorrah, we know well the story of Lot there and his family. Sexual perversion is what brought their demise. Isn't it interesting today that out of all the things from murder to lying to stealing, the real threat that is presented, the one common denominator constantly here is, is perversion of a moral nature, of a sexual nature? Isn't that what we're experiencing in our country, the unraveling? I know we have a lot of other things that we should be concerned about, but... The tip of the spear is this moral decay. In all three of these examples, we have the inescapable coming judgment of God. And these, these apostates will not go, are not going to escape that. Verses 8 through 10. See these verses here. He gives, Jude gives a, a description of these apostates. First, the first one is they rely on dreams. They're dreamers. You know, God, I, God told me this. I had a dream last night. I think God's telling me this. I had a man tell me once, and all, all legitimacy says, you know, I, I saw Jesus in the clouds. And when I saw Jesus in the clouds, I knew it was a sign of this or that. These dreamers don't depend on the sufficiency of God's word. They don't rely on God's word. They don't build on God's word. They, they're seeking emotions and feelings, and they're these dreamers. They defile the body, verse 8. They pollute their own bodies through their depraved acts. They... Buck authority, they're defiant. They blaspheme, they're slanderers. Now, if you want to take your Bible study this afternoon, you could go study what it means when Michael the archangel was battling for the body of Moses, the devil. You could read that and come back and tell me what it says. Interesting read, interesting study, but it'd be sidetracking here. Verse 10, ignorant, they lack understanding. Then it goes on to describe... Three, the, the way of the apostate. He gives three examples of that. He calls it the way of Cain. He calls it the way of Balaam and the way of Korah's rebellion. Verses 11, verse 11. First, he talks about the way of the apostates is the way of Cain. What's the way of Cain? It's murder, it's hate, jealousy. I like A.W. Tozer's quote on this passage. He says, so skilled is error at imitating truth that the two are constantly being mistaken for each other. It takes a sharp eye these days to know which brother is Cain and which brother is Abel. He talks about the way of Balaam's error, Numbers 22. Balaam was a prophet for hire, greed. He talks about the way of Korah's rebellion. He rebelled against God's authority in Moses and Aaron, and in doing so, 250 of them were cast away and destroyed. Then he gives five examples from nature in verses 12 and 13. Five examples from nature of what these apostates look like. He calls them hidden reefs. 
They're dangerous. They pretend to act out of love, but they really just love themselves. He describes them in verse 12 and 13 as waterless clouds. They promise much, but deliver little. They're fruitless trees. Their roots are dead. They can't produce fruit. Then he says they're, they're wild waves. They crash like waves, but all they do is stir up moral filth. They're like wandering stars. So he gives five analogies or five pictures from creation. They're like wandering stars. They're here today, gone tomorrow. They're the type who walk into a church and talk a lot. Never seen them before, but boy, they're new. and Boy, they have a lot of answers before you even ask a question. And they hop around from church to church because they're here today and gone tomorrow. And then he goes in, in verses 14 and 15, and I want us to read these verses, a beautiful picture. This passage is, is controversial from the point of view that he's quoting Enoch, the book of Enoch, which we don't have. Well, we have it, but it's not part of the canon, but clearly quotes from it. Look what he says as he gives this, this, this picture of God's condemnation to come, his future final condemnation on the ungodly. Look what he says. He says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Then he gives a description of that in verse 16 and what he means by that. He speaks of the certainty of judgment. There's one quote that I, that I wrote down for myself. Just, I tell you, the first one, the time I read this in context of what he said here was, was is so powerful. One author describes this text, this passage, he says this. Here, because he's describing the Lord's return with 10,000 of the holy ones, he says, here he comes to a crown, not a cross. He comes to a throne, not a cradle. He comes to reign and not to die. He comes to judge and not be judged. Wow, that is just, that moves me. Because this is, this is the coming of our Lord, described and depicted here. He's telling the people, these believers that have been called out, he says his, God will come and execute his judgment on all. And it will be fair. In the final passage here, in the next just few minutes, he gives them a, a reminder, beginning in verse 17. He says, but you must remember, beloved. Again, he, he says, my loved ones, I love you, he says, but remember this. He says, first of all, and here's, here's a, a few ways he's telling them to guard themselves in the midst and how to walk in a godly way in the midst of an apostate nation and with the danger of apostasy. First of all, he says, keep remembering, beloved, the predictions and the words of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You must remember, know, know the word. Know the truth. Be anchored in truth. The, obviously, the, the, the best remedy to know error is to know truth. The problem with the church here is that they had forgotten things that they should have known. There are truths that should have been anchored deep into their hearts 
that they should have been made obvious to them whenever error was before them. He says, you must, you must remember. Expository preaching helps greatly in establishing this. See, because if, if you have purely thematic preaching, what happens is that it's easy for a, a preacher to go where his desires want to take him. I'm not saying he's, he's being an apostate. What I'm saying is that when you go through expository preaching, you take the text and you walk through it systematically. Otherwise, what you're tempted to do is, uh, you know, you're, you see somebody dressed immodestly, so next Sunday you're preaching on modesty. Offerings are down this Sunday, so next Sunday we're preaching on giving. And, and, and you, you kind of chase after what you see is the need. Expository preaching is a systematic teaching of God's Word. Help us anchor truth in a way that allows us to take truth, be faithful to that truth, and pass it on without tainting it in any way. And that's our desire in doing so. I saw one sermon some years ago where a preacher took the passage, if I perish, I perish. And from there, it was, you know, if I'm going to stand on women not wearing pants, if I perish, I perish. If I stand on not drinking, if I, if I perish, I perish. I think the whole, I think the whole application of it was him, him chasing after his own desires. We take the word and we systematically teach the word and we pass it on systematically without tainting it. He says, keep remembering, be anchored in truth, know the truth. And then what he say in verse 20, keep growing, building up yourselves in your most holy faith. Keep growing in truth. Are you growing in truth? Then he says, keep praying. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Seek him in prayer. Seek the Spirit of God that he might give you understanding, that might, he might give you wisdom. Seek his face. Call upon him. Draw upon him. As you pray, it's not God seeking to understand you. It's you seeking to understand God and to understand the mind of God. Verse 21, keep loving. Keep yourselves in the love of God. May, may the love for him draw you to him. May your love for him fuel a hatred for sin that you would not tolerate the sin would sit at your door. Keep humbling yourself waiting for the mercy of our Lord. We depend on the mercies of God. See, we're no better than anybody else. We're no better than an apostate. And we're, if we're not careful, we could be prone to, to walking away and walking away from the truth ourselves if we're not anchored in truth, growing in truth, and walking in truth. As a matter of fact, he ends verse 22 by saying, keep exerting compassion. Have mercy on those who doubt. Are we, are we aware of those that surround us that would be inclined and enticed to be drawn away from? Are we, are we involved? Do we care enough like Jude does? Do we care enough about our fellow believers, our fellow believers to, to desire that they walk in truth? Or we say, oh, that's their problem. Ah, hey, they heard. I told them. They do it, what they want with it now. I mean, do, are, do we care enough about each other? And he ends here with a doxology or praise to God. He finishes with these words, and we'll end on, on these words this morning. As, as Jude lays a foundation, says, he says, believers, beloved ones, loved ones, you're called of God, you're, you're kept in him. 
You're called to contend for the faith. In the midst of the danger of apostasy that infiltrates the body. May be true to him. May we be true to his word. And he ends here with the verse 24. He says, Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, lest we stumble, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, talks about the ultimate reconciliation. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, be majesty, be dominion, be authority before all time and now and, and forever. We live in, in, in challenging days, but wonderful days. The greater the darkness, the greater the light can shine. May we as a church stand firm on the word of God. May we as a church stand firm and grow on the truth of God's word. Because we're going to be needing more and more to contend for the faith in a society that continually is antagonistic about it. And may we do so lovingly, graciously. And may the Lord keep us from stumbling ourselves, but may we be true to him and faithful to, to his word. Let's close in a, in a word of prayer this morning. Father, what, a, what an admonition, what a passion Jude has for the beloved. What a call. I can't think of a call more, more timely than one for our generation and a generation living in this country, in this society, to contend for the faith. Lord, may you give us that desire. May we respond to that call. May we be grounded in truth. May we seek your word and seek your face, Lord. What a, what a blessing it is for us, Lord, to be the called and the chosen ones, blessed to have received the gospel. Lord, help us to proclaim it and protect it and to preserve it faithfully. For in your name we pray. Amen.